So it's not just um, a headline that angers you or a headline that, you know, that makes you feel emotional, but you, you actually understand it. Even if you don't agree with it, it's totally fine. Who does the responsibility fall on? Does it fall on consumers to be looking at their sources, or does it fall on journalists to make sure that they're objective? A leader in the conversation of changing journalism. So I'd like to welcome Dennis Weibold. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, We're very excited to uh, keep this going. I'm Dalen Turk. I'm Kara Tebow. I'm Curtis Medinas. Man, Curtis, you're just... Is that really Like, gosh, dang, you're just not on it. I need some urgency. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, welcome to episode two. Uh, Thanks for listening in. Um, So as we discussed last episode, um, that was a a little bit more of placing context uh, and a little bit more of a historical... I guess, picture of uh, what media is and what it was and kind of the way it's transformed and changed from, as we said, you know, if you listen from the press, literally to the media. Um, But today we're hoping to go into looking a little bit more of how we perceive it, how we can communicate it, um, and really answering some questions of how we can be more news literate. Well, you know, one thing that really excited me about doing this podcast is to tell, you know, the perspective of sort of, you know, millennials and, and, uh, and younger generations, um, you know, we're, we're kind of shut out of a lot of, um, you know, a lot of news right now, um, either because we don't connect with it or we don't subscribe to it or, you know, uh, maybe we don't even see it, um, you know, and one thing I just realized was, you know, there's so much that has changed um, in the way that, that news is reported and how we take it in um, just in our lifetimes. Like, you know, I mean, I've only been an adult for like 15 years, um, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and like, so like, I feel like a pretty young person still. And, and still though, like, like I think back 15 years ago and there's so many things that just didn't exist or just didn't work the way it does now. So it hasn't really been something that has been that long ago changed. You know, so like, um, for example, you know, uh, just the rise of the internet, you know, uh, getting it through that, this idea of like, like 24 hour cable networks is fairly new, you know, opinions, uh, being kind of mixed back and forth with, with news and, and not, and having those, those lines blurred and all that, you know, so, so really what I want to get out of the podcast today is to figure out like, what the heck has happened to, like Americans' perception of the press, you know, and, and how do we fix that? Like, I feel like it's something that we have to do as millennials because there's this huge gap between like baby boomers who are pretty much in most of the like high position power right now. Um, you know, they're this huge generation and, you know, you have that, you have the, with the Gen X in between, but you know, they're sort of there, but I don't, I never totally feel their presence on a lot of these things. And then there's millennials, and like we're kind of the the oldest generation that's going to remember how some of these things were, some of the things that worked that maybe we're not doing as much anymore. You know, and I think we you know, it, uh, it, we touched on it at the end of the last episode. Um, your idea of you know how we perceive the press, how we perceive the media, and I was talking about you know a woman who 
she shared this video and it was, you know, I'm a nurse and I have a friend who's a nurse in New York, but I'm not going to say her name. And she works at this hospital, but I'm not going to say the name of the hospital. And it was just a video on YouTube. And it seems like people struggle to differentiate that content from the news. And I think a key word for that is content, because I, I, I think content is different from news, but to some people, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have to understand, you know, what news is 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 pushing an opinion, even if even if it's through the news, or or what news is actually like giving us, you know, a balanced uh, view of both sides. Like for example, um, there was there was a story recently, um, and I and I wanted to, okay, so let me back up a little bit. So so a few months ago, um, I had a conservative friend of mine, huge Trump supporter, um, tell me about. Um, this thing called One America News Network. Now, it's been getting a lot of press lately. It was covered uh, in uh, last week tonight. Trump tweets about it constantly. Um, it's basically supposed to be like the Fox News that conservatives want it to be, like mm-hmm. it's even more to the right. A quick point. You know, and so I kept, um, You mentioned yeah. like John Oliver and whatnot. It, I find it interesting because a lot of the ways that these kind of underground right-leaning quote-unquote news sources get some of their light is through a lot of these left-leaning satirical shows that (laughs) make jokes about them. That's true. Yeah, I mean, he literally spent the whole episode talking about it. But but to his credit, though, like, you know, he did wait until it actually, you know, was pretty big. Of course, he's going to make it bigger just by talking about it, and I'm scared that even us talking about it is somehow going to turn more people onto it, but, you know, which is not really my point <laughs> in, in doing that. But at the same time, you know, if the president's tweeting it constantly, it's, it's, it's already there. It's, and yes. so, so, in a, so in a way to ignore it, you know, is, is really not a great idea. And, 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 you know, and I think it's a better idea to understand why this news network is connecting with a demographic of people who no longer connect with, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so one of the things I did was, was I, I took a story. I just wanted to see sort of how, how it would, you know, compare. I took a story on One American Network and I found that same uh, story on, let's see, did I do that right? Wait. Yeah, I yeah, found that same story on, on the LA Times. Um, it was, kind of a, ba- a basic boring story it was about uh, a, a district in uh, california which might um flip for the first time from um from democrat back to republican it'd be the first time it did it in like 20 years and there's a bunch of circumstances around it about how like there's a um uh, there's a bit of a scandal about the person that that left office and and it's already kind of conservative and trump's been tweeting about it and all this stuff so it's, 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 it's like kind of a nothing story except for the fact that people keep kind of like trying to look at it as a litmus test for how the rest of the country is thinking. So anyway, so I looked at the, you know, One American Network coverage of it. And, and, and one of the things I've been noticing about stories on that, that um, website is that a lot of them are really short. Like they're just like, it's almost like the ticker tape machine that used to, you know, go, you know, go on, you, you know, used to uh, see on Fox News or, or CNN or whatever, it would just have like a quick blurb and just enough to sort of get you interested, but it wouldn't have to follow up with a lot of details. So like on an American network, um, the, 
um, the headline um, was was uh, Republican officials call excuse me was uh, California special congressional election um, with Mike Garcia. Hold on a second, let me let me back up. I need to actually have this up. I'm looking at the link, but not actually like looking at it. No, I find that's actually really interesting. Like you discussed the the length of these articles, and it definitely seems like some of these kind of more underground, not you know mainstream media news sources gain a lot of their traction off the fact that they're not producing these really this really long you know forms of content um, because it's easier for people to consume. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of stories that tell you what you want to hear. And that's great if that's your only, you know, objective. But, but if you actually want to understand what's going on in, like, you know, in the world and like why things are happening, it's just really not all that helpful. Well, and you could argue that maybe they don't want them to fully understand what's going on. Well, that's the problem is that's news wasn't meant to be consumed in a headline. That's not what news originally was. You know, you had your three W's, who, what, where, when, why, how, plus your H, obviously. And uh, <laughs> print media or print journalism was originally intended to just flush out those basic details. But you did. You had to read the article. It, it wasn't meant to tell a story through the, the title. And now as we evolved through social media – we just scroll and people get literally get their news that way. I think I, I read a, a, a stat the other day from, from Pew Poll. They said like 72% of readers believe that the information they're getting from their friends' social media posts is reliable, as, as reliable as traditional news organizations. Um, so, <laughs> because why would your friends lie to you, right? right. <laughs> you know? Right. So it's because they don't know themselves. They, they, they don't. And so now we're literally gathering our news by scrolling through headlines, and you got you have to have the juiciest headline. Um, and if it sounds fun, why not believe it? Who cares about facts? So this is the headline. This is this is the headline in One American Network. It says Republican officials call foul play in California special election. The same headline in Los Angeles Times is during the pandemic, Republicans see a rare political opportunity in California. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, a little different, same story. But, and so, of course, you know, headline's going to be whatever whatever the source is, is going to sort of like appeal more to, you know, whomever. I say they're both guilty of that. But when you actually look at the story, the one on One American Network, that story literally fits in to like a fourth of what the Los Angeles uh, uh, Times did. Uh, you know, like, like Los Angeles Times doesn't like quote one American network, but basically they have their story almost like almost verbatim um, inside of their story, except the Los Angeles Times goes the extra step and shows the other side, you know, and they actually quote, uh, you know, quotes officials or whatever. I do. Uh, I do uh, wonder like what the staff size of companies like one American news network and the epoch times and, you know, whatever other, like I'm trying to think of other. I imagine they're quite small because they're such niche. Yeah, or even like industries. What is it? Patriotics or whatever it is, or Occupy Democrats or <laughs> Patriotics. That sounds yeah, like that... a bad sci-fi. So movie. I'm I'm looking at the like the the media bias map, and it shows like all this like oh, different. Yeah. And so <laughs> at the very the most radical on each end 
For left-leaning, the most radical is the Patriobotics. And for right-leaning, the most radical is InfoWars, which <laughs> let's, which... we're not surprised <laughs> there. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think a lot of people expect biases, you know, and like when you, when you turn on Fox News, you expect it to be sort of the Republican viewpoint. But, but and so that to me doesn't matter so much, but you have to also balance it out <laughs> with, you know, with more, with more um, a headline that angers you or headline that, you know, that makes you feel emotional, but you, you actually understand it. Even if you don't agree with it, it's totally fine. Like when I posted a, a link the other day to Facebook, my conservative friend, the same one that shared the One American Network thing, he looked at the New York Times um, uh, thing I posted and, and, he, and he was like, oh, we should just believe them. And, and like a thing I pointed out last week, you know, no, you shouldn't just believe them, but they do have like considerable more resources and more to lose. So, so like what, what you just said, Dalen, about like, you know, what are the staffs? There's probably no comparison. Los Angeles Times is a huge operation. I'm sure One American Network is a fraction thereof, and it shows in their reporting. Then you wonder too, like what kind of recruiting they're doing? Like who, who are they attracting to work for them? Um, people and, with an agenda, you'd imagine. And that's the problem. See, and it just, it makes you wonder if, you know, you get these students coming out of college, you know, they've got their journalism degree, or even if you go into the journalism field without, you know, proper journalism training, you know, are you going in with a specific bias to go to a news source or a media source that leans toward that? Is that something you're aiming for? Or do you... Like, I guess maybe I'm naive in thinking that the vast majority, if not all of, you know, journalists come out of journalism school being like, I'm going to be objective. I'm going to be the true journalist. Or do people come out of journalism school being like, okay, I have the training. Now I want to use that to push, you know, my side of things. I bet there's a fair few mix, but there's also those those small organizations that when you're starting out as a new journalist, you also just take what you can get, right? It's so true. it's like you find yourself at, we, you know, we've all taken, most of us have taken internships or first jobs and we're like, ooh, this doesn't really align with me, but it's my stepping stone. It's my yeah. that. So I don't know if it's, I got to make a paycheck and I know that this is what I'm supposed to write or do you get, you know, indoctrinated in, along the way or who knows, you know, I bet there's a, a good mix of the two. Well, and it's like even I was working at Talk 1370. It's Talk 1370, the right choice. And that doesn't necessarily. <laughs> Honey, you yeah. have to give it it's, to it's, I mean, it's great. Like, let's be real here. That's pretty that's solid. <laughs> that, is, that is a brilliant slogan. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and everyone I worked there, that everybody was, you know, had their own political views. Not, not everyone was right leaning. And it was great. It was a wonderful newsroom to work in. Um, and I'll say too, you know, because it doesn't necessarily line up with my personal views. Um, oh, one sec folks. Uh, we'll be right back. We have a guest coming on here in a minute. All right, everybody. Thank you. We are right back. We have uh, me, Dalen, Kara, and Curtis here, and we have a special guest. He's been uh, a professor at the University of Montana Journalism School since 1989. He was a reporter in Arizona wow. and Montana. He was the editor for the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. He served on the board for the Montana Innocence Project and the Montana Newspaper Association. And in my opinion, he is a leader in the conversation of changing journalism. So I'd like to welcome Dennis Weibold. 
Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you for being here. So we've been talking for the past 15 minutes or so kind of about how journalism has been changing and how we as consumers and journalists can responsibly handle that. Um, so I think a first question I want to ask you as a professor is, and actually we were just talking about it, is uh, students coming out of journalism school, if they're, if they have this idea of being, you know, the pure objective journalist, like I know me and my classmates had, what changes have you seen with journalism students coming into school and leaving in terms of the way media has changed and how they can create news nowadays? Well, I, you know, I think they're pretty earnest and uh, the students really haven't changed all that much in terms of, of what they want to do, uh, how they can do that has changed, obviously. Very much and, so. Uh, and then the economic environment uh, for it to make that happen and to make it robust has changed a lot, too. But I do think they, they, they care. They want people to be well-informed. They want to be a part of that uh, uh, activity. Uh, but they also want to make sure that they're telling true stories. And uh, and I think there's that, that's, a, that's something that they care about even more. I had a lot of discussion in this semester's Ethics and Trend class about uh, what they call advocacy journalism, and uh, and we and we had probably had the same discussion in your in your section oh, yeah. years yeah. ago. We were talking about what it means to be objective, and I think there's kind of an obsolete idea of that. I don't think a lot of people really know what objectivity means in any kind of science sense, and and what it means is you ask a question and then go out looking for all the best evidence and see what what your answer is. Uh, they they see problems and they see problems that they want to help solve. Uh, and they think that that's a mission that journalism should have. And and I actually think good journalism can come from both motivations. It's not an either or thing. Uh, it, it all depends on how you do it. So we spend a lot of time talking about credibility. And if you're a, a an, an advocacy journalist, I guess, and if you've got a cause that you want to support, uh, who are you going to be talking to? Are you just going to be preaching to the choir? You really think you're going to be very credible if you if you dismiss salient evidence on another side of an issue? All of those things get get discussion hashed out uh, pretty well in class, and I think they they understand that that even if if they want to be you know, one of my, you know, some of my favorite journalists were investigators. Some of my favorite journalists saw problems and wanted to tell people about them. And uh, I admire that, you know, uh, that outrage uh, that fuels <laughs> a lot of the best journalism and investigation that the world, you know, has ever seen. But the, the key question for me is how are you going to do that in a way that's persuasive? How are you going to do that in a way that makes people uh, believe you and take you seriously? And if they're not doing that, then then what have you? What are you accomplishing? So that's that's the way I put the question. Uh, and they come back to it every single time. I mean, I'm not surprised by it, but it does seem to be uh, as as journalism and politics seems to them more polarized as they see examples of you know false equivalencies being traded being described as objective as they see all those kind of things they wonder what the real answer is and they wonder if they can really get at problems and i think they can they just have to learn how to be really good reporters to do that and they have to learn you know the basics of you know critical thinking and good ethical uh, understanding of what's going on and and that's a part of what i think is more important than ever is just this sort of critical thinking uh, that has to that humans are not naturally very good at <laughs> frankly <laughs> no, and, <we're> not. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you know, it's just, it's not in our DNA. And, and it, we have to sort of be taught to how to do that, how to, taught how to think it through. And this media environment doesn't make it any easier uh, to have a thoughtful response to things that happen so quickly when people are demand, demanding instant answers. How do you ask questions like who's behind the information? You know, what's the evidence? What do other sources say? Those are the kind of hallmarks of a critical thinking approach. And, and I think there's not a whole lot of patience for that. Uh, from an audience in some respects that has all these other sources at their disposal. You can find a website for everything. Well, it's just, it's so well, interesting. Either. Like so many people are willing to shrug off re individual reporters plainly because they're associated with CNN or Fox News or whatever it may be. You know, they, they're more identified with whatever the perspective is rather than the news that they're actually producing. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question that that's part of the, what's going on, too. I mean, I think you see, uh, uh, you know, trust in the media become more polarized. Uh, it's always been polarized to some extent. I and mean, you can go back to the to the 70s and look at some Gallup polls on trust in the media and you'll find a big split between uh, whether how much, you know, Democrats and Republicans trust the media. Uh, that's fallen now. And I think part of that is just due to the fact that you can find a lot of the information to support exactly what you want to do. You know, there's a there's a way of, of getting information that starts with a theory, that starts with the prejudice even, and then cherry picks facts. And if that's the way you want to think, uh, then uh, you're going to find uh, just about anything you want to find uh, when you're out there trying to look for evidence. So I think that's a a problem that journalists have to confront today. And people are polarized too. They suddenly have these uh, these uh, new sources at their at their disposable disposal so their new sources aren't as scarce as they used to be uh their uh, uh the question is whether they're as authoritative as they used to be but mm -hmm. they're certainly not scarce and you can find them in just a lot of places too so i think that's one of the problems that you're going to have to that you're going to have to have I, i'm kind of uh, optimistic that you know with time and and some media literacy, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get over the hump in some regard here. I don't think you'll ever stamp out a misinformation or disinformation. Uh, it's so embedded in our DNA for so many, you know, good cognitive brain, you know, brain reasons. You know, people who research this stuff know that we're hardwired to to accept some of this stuff. Uh, sometimes we're we're. We don't have much click restraint, right? <laughs> Absolutely uh, not. And we, and we so about I this. think you know it's it's hard. To, it's it's really hard to get people to to, to slow down and think this thing through. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Kara. We, we talked about this you know, a lot it, last I, week of just sorry, Curtis, of um of just this confirmation okay, bias and these echo chambers and this me media right. and you know like you said it's it's never been easier to confirm the position that you you would like to you know view the world as and then it's almost this identity crisis and of course it's fake news if you hear something that you don't like that goes against you know your beliefs or that's a little bit anxiety provoking because mm -hmm. just shut that off and go subscribe to what's going to make you feel good and so. I think that's such a prevalent issue in our society with, with media right now. And I'm just curious, who does the responsibility fall on? Does it fall on consumers to be looking at their sources or does it fall on journalists to make sure that they're it's, objective? 
Well, the, the real answer that, that's not very satisfying is that it falls on everybody. Uh, it really does. Uh, everyone has to sort of understand this environment and learn how to swim in it a little bit better. Uh, I, you know, I don't think any of this, these human predilections are new. What's new is the media environment. Mm-hmm. What's new is, is the technology to allow all these things to happen. I don't think humans have changed all that much in terms of their ability to want to look for, for quick answers, to come up with, with you know, uh, schemes and, and all sorts of crazy explanations for things like we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, every, I, I can imagine that in any, every epidemic in history, there's been all sorts of fake news and disinformation, misinformation. It's now the ability to spread it is what's scary. Uh, but I do think people can kind of get over the curve. This is kind of new still. Uh, and these sort of uh, crises, uh, these things that we're, that we're facing right now, are going to be huge lessons, and they there will be some damage, I suspect, as yeah. a result of those lessons too. But but I think they're going to be big lessons. I mean, we won't get suckered for that again, and maybe another generation will have to learn that all over uh, down the road someday. But you know, the basic core idea of critical thinking and teaching it. Yeah, I don't mean just in college. That's way too late, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, you you gotta you gotta talk about this in 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 you know elementary school and middle school and <laughs> high school at the very latest. You know, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But but uh, you know, I think a lot of digital natives think, "Wow, I can I can understand this environment pretty easily, and I can see just by looking at a website whether it's for real or or whether it's not." And I think on a on the most superficial sort of examples they can, but the hard part, the thing that, that a lot of people don't understand it, what is what it takes to evaluate evidence, what it takes to really see what other credible sources uh, have to say about these kind of things, and to know who's behind the information. What do they have to gain? What are they, what are they trying to play? And, and I think that makes skeptics of all of us, and I think we kind of have to be. Journalists, the public, uh, everybody. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to agree on things, but I think we'll get better at sort of uh, understanding, you know, where the where the evidence falls flat. And there's plenty of examples of really ludicrous stuff going around right now uh, that sort of has you know traction for a hot minute. Uh, but gets dismissed uh, in the end. I, you know, what did I see that, you know, if you pull a, a hair dryer in your face, you won't get coronavirus. That's oh, right. you know, <laughs> we'll just all do that. Yeah, uh, uh, we're going to pause real quick so I can blow some hot air in my face. Uh. Right, right. 5G, it's all 5G, man, you know. And and, and you've got to microwave your mail. And, and, uh, well, and, and I then, know, you know, people are on Facebook they're they're seeing that and when those posts get taken down you know oh better read this before it gets taken down this is a conspiracy it's almost like there's this <laughs> underlying current of like this is the truth and they don't want you to know and it's like well do they not want you to know well, or think, is it dangerous yeah, to spread they that? literally are saying that <laughs> well i think that's true and I, and I think that's one of the dangers uh the inherent dangers of the fact checking uh, kind of movement is that when you fact check something, uh, the conspiracy theorists are going to think, see, they're just suppressing it, which just uh, makes it look like we're being mm-hmm. persecuted. Therefore, uh, it's much it's much more important than you really know. Well, I'm always I'm always suspicious of people who say they a lot. <laughs> you know? yeah. Those people. I'm really suspicious well, yeah, of people who say the media as if it's one monolithic thing, and it's 
it's just not. And that's part of what we have to wrap our brains around too. There are all sorts of people out there who have media tools, who aren't who are practicing practicing media information for all sorts of good and bad reasons. Uh, a lot of people, Sarah, because a lot of people, you know, same people that say, you know, oh, it's conspiracy that you know they're taking this news or whatever. Also, the same people that that are like most easily yelling news when like the New York Times has to you know, go back on something that they reported the day before because they found new information that it was false, you know, and they're like, oh, well, that was fake news, but, like, you know, that that, that changed since yesterday. But if you change my news since yesterday, it's a conspiracy. Right, and, and you know, I think that's true, and you're certainly seeing that in the whole uh, pandemic coverage, and, and I think it's because... Uh, Neither journalists nor politicians are very good, or the public, frankly, that we serve is very good at uncertainty. Uh, and that's what science has to deal with. We know things and we do not know things. And so our information is going to change. So how we communicate and the care in which we take to do that is really important. But when you get, you know, politicians and and even some journalists who have uh, partisan games uh, that they're trying to play, that you're you're just having all sorts of confusion out there. You don't have a have a have a authoritative source for a lot of information that you're going to see. And there's I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a great article in the New Yorker that came out in April, and it was about uh, uh, the different experience between the the coronavirus. Uh, uh, control methods going on in Seattle and in New York City. And Seattle followed a, a kind of a CDC uh, epidemic intelligence playbook that was put together, you know, back in, in the 2009 H1N1 virus thing that we hardly remember today, but it was fairly deadly, killed 12,000 people. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Seattle was able to make some pretty good decisions early and communicate them really well and simply and tell people that some of these things are probably going to change, but we're going to have to make some hard calls and get you on our side too. And I think by and large, that's been, people have sort of appreciated that when it's happened uh, and uh, appreciated the health officials who are following that playbook, but that didn't happen in New York. It didn't happen for you know, a, a, couple, a couple of weeks, and right now a couple of weeks can make all the difference. You know, we're talking about thousands of cases and, and hundreds of thousands of cases in some or some respects. So, so listening to people who are in authority, who know something about what they're talking about, has never been more important. Uh, and yet, you know, there's part of us that wants to listen to the politicians in power. There's a generation that's my parents' generation that grew up with Walter Cronkite and maybe mm -hmm. even have memories of FDR talking to him in, in fireside chats to him. They have nothing to fear but fear, it's fear itself and, and giving them this sort of soothing, uh, we'll get through this together a kind of talk. But there's also some difficult things that have to be said. You have to stay home. We can't go to school. <laughs> we're we're going we're gonna to spread this thing and make it out of control because we don't have a virus. We don't have the protective gear. We have to be pretty honest about those things uh, with people. And not think the messenger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, you know, otherwise, who we got to listen to? You know, so I do think that it's really important to let the, the health officials sort of take over here. And that's what happened during that uh, H1N1 uh, thing in, in uh, 2009 that we don't even talk about or very much remember anymore. 
uh, it was because people really did sort of follow the health authorities' kind of advice in these kind of cases. Now, this is magnified because of all the economic impacts. There's mm-hmm. some horrible decisions having to be made. And gosh, you got to be empathetic with the people who are who are suffering in those 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 kind of circumstances. People are losing jobs. People are whole generations may be you know suffering in ways that they haven't uh, because of the 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 reaction here. But if you but if you know what's you know if you're not around, you can't even find a way out. So uh, you know that's why the health information I think uh, needs to get a lot more emphasis, and we can't listen to what leaders talk about when they talk about cockamamie <laughs> schemes to to fix things uh, or or different cures that haven't been tested or you know they uh, and I mean the mixed messages that we're getting out of the White House right now are pretty crazy uh, well and you it's, look at, it's unfortunate you know, when you get news sources that are right-leaning left-leaning and they kind of pick and choose what authorities, to you know, get the information from because maybe you'll get some sources that really look at Andrew Cuomo, but then you'll get some sources that only look at Donald Trump. Yeah, well, I think well, Andrew, even even, even Andrew Twitter. Cuomo should have let his scientists take the lead. Yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and do the talking. Well, like. It's so hard to tell people oh, it's okay. You know, in the states, it's their responsibility to open and then send tweets out saying that, you know, liberate Michigan, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and and that's one of the hottest spots in the country right now. So, you know, it's 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 frustrating to watch these mixed messages. And that's only decreases people's uh, respect and and uh, for any kind of authoritative source right now. So uh, it's a difficult time. And I think we're learning some hard lessons about media literacy. And just about facts. But if I'm, you know, if I've got heart trouble, I'm not going to go to my garage and mechanic and ask him <laughs> to fix it. I would hope not. <laughs> well, then, I know that for journalists right now, it's tough. I know a lot of news organizations are grappling with this idea of when we had those White House press briefings every day, some organizations were like, we're not going to stream this live anymore because we, we don't want to be responsible for that messaging. But then there's that argument of, well, is it news? If a politician says it, is it news? And do we have to share that? Or do we not? Because it's it could be irresponsible if it's, if it's not factual. Well, I, that, it is a real debate, and you're right. You're exactly right, and it's a real debate because a lot of journalists come from a time when, when the president's words, no matter what he said, got scrutinized like you couldn't believe. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, stock market analysts were trying to read everything they could into those five words he gave at a press conference, or, or trying to figure out where this is going to go and what it could mean for business, or security or taxes or whatever the case might be. Uh, but I also think it, there's a time in the past where politicians were a lot more measured in terms of what they said. Uh, it, you know, they were careful about, uh, they, they understood the response of markets and institutions to the things that they were going to see. And I don't think that's pretty much the the goal right now. The goal seems to be to increase uh, loyalty, loyalty to a cause, and 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 once you do that, then then you know what really sort of matters. So I, so I think you know this idea that you have to write down everything and says and watch him all the time. I mean, I would cover it. I'd have somebody there, but I don't think you have to choose what. You don't have to run it all live. What's well, one uh, of the and, pillars of journalism? It was report and do minimal harm or whatever it was. 
Right. I mean, you know, get, get, seek the truth and report it and, uh, and uh, you know, protect against, you know, collateral damage uh, that comes from seeking the truth and, and also what you can't verify uh, and be able to tell people what you know and can't verify versus what you can know. And I think right now uh, the people who are best at dealing with that kind of uncertainty are the people from the CDC, are the people from the NIH, are the people who are part of the epidemic, you know, uh, information system teams that know this stuff and understand it. And, and it's, uh, it, we get lost in sort of digressions and things that aren't really focused on the problem. I mean, I worry about China and the U.S. poking at yeah. each other. Uh, here we are in a global crisis that's going to take some global cooperation to solve. Uh, and if they can't do that, I don't have much hope for a uh, solution to global warming. I mean, there's another, you know, sort of crisis that's going to cross borders. How do we talk to each other frankly and, and scientifically about those kind of things without overstating the case and without uh, understanding, you know, what's really certain and what we don't know. So you have to be careful. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I can make any other point, that's it. It's boring. <laughs> it re requires kind of critical thinking. How do we know this? Who's behind it? How do what are other sources saying? Uh, but I do think that's what we're going to learn one way or the other out of this uh, infodemic. And so right now we're in the, the age of quarantine, if you will. And I, I think it's arguable that like 100% of people are getting their news from social media. Um, so what, I guess, advice per se, what, what would you say to those people how to responsibly consume their news through social media when there's just so much fast and quick stuff that they can see and kind of make their mind up about it however they want. Right. Right. Uh, I, you know, I was looking at a you know, study. I'm really interested in fact checking and media literacy approaches. How can you teach people how to, how to check this kind of stuff for themselves? But, but it, one of the, one of the things that's so hard to do is get people from to practice what I mentioned earlier, which is called click restraint. And I, I find that a, a lot of young people see social media kind of information. And the, I don't hope this doesn't sound unfair, but I mean, they don't see it as news. Uh, as something that, that they have to use or that it's a part of their lives, it's mostly, is this entertaining? Is this something I want to know? Is this yeah. something that I that I sort of need to know in any sort of sense? Or is this just stuff that's flying at me a mile a minute? Uh, because if it's that, then I really don't pay much attention, nor does it have much consequence if I just pass it along. Uh, oh, look at this is funny. Look how outrageous this is. Uh, so they're not really making a judgment on truth or or stuff like that. It's mostly this is kind of makes your stomach makes you laugh or make you cry or or something. It gets an emotional sort of engaging response from you. That's good. There was a study that came out of MIT just recently where they looked at at how people looked at sort of online posts, and they realized people were sharing this stuff pretty regularly and never really asking themselves the question of whether it was true or not. There which was, was kind of startling, which was kind of startling. And they said, you know, what they once they did this survey and this experiment again, and they just put that little nudge at the front of the Facebook post that says, is this true? Do you think this is true? Mm -hmm. uh, that people were suddenly a lot more careful. <laughs> well, <and> we <laughs> no. in the uh, last episode, we referenced an article by uh, um, Melissa Zimdar. And in 2016, she made a list of 
untrustworthy slash misleading news sources. And um, she ended up writing an article, I think it was for the Washington Post. Um, but in the article, she talks about how people base what they click on off of emotion. It's not based on, oh, like this could be good information. It's, oh, this is how this made me feel. Therefore, I'm going to view it. Yeah, and and what are the lines between entertainment and infotainment and news? What are the lines between commentary and factual reporting? All those things have been blurred to a certain extent. So, so, so the media has, you know, I know it's, I said it's not monolithic, but it does have some chickens that are coming home to roost here. And it, there is a part of it that has to try to, uh, you know, at least under its, its advertising model, which is, uh, suspect as ever these days, uh, but the, got to get a lot of clicks, got to get people to hit it. Well, what do people click on? They click on things that make them angry. They click on things that make them laugh. You know, <laughs> you know I, we know that. I got myself in <laughs> trouble the other day. I shared a, a a link on Facebook, and it was a picture of Dr. Fauci that was photoshopped to look ominous and dark, and then there was a, another person pictured right next to him. And it said, this is what the government's not telling you. And when you click the link, it takes you to a YouTube video that is just Rick Astley singing. And I shared it, you know, getting Rick rolled. And I shared it because I was like, oh, this is funny because I see so many people sharing these. Oh, this is what the government, you know, doesn't want you and, and blah, blah, blah. And how Hollywood's run by elite pedophiles. And this is what Brad Pitt has to say. That's a real story that, I, that someone shared. Um, but well, I realized one, one thing I would, um, people were clicking also, on this link I shared and they were clicking on it without actually, they were reacting to it without actually clicking on it because, you know, they're reacting, you know, why would you share this? I'm like, well, if you click, actually click on it, it's a, a music video. So I had to edit my post and say, this is not real. This is just a joke. Click on it and you'll understand. And I'm just like, wow, that was like one that hit me really hard is that people really don't look into things no my favorite well, comments well, in the, on the facebook comments are always there's always someone that's like did you actually read the article and they're like right. well i just I, I read the headline and i or they'll share an I, article from 2011. <laughs> yeah there's yeah, a lot and, of times and, like you know somebody will comment and they won't even realize that like this or their argument it just sounds like it's not in the headline <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. It just makes the point, you know, that, that it's coming at us so fast and furious. It's like drinking out of a fire hose, you know, and and so what do you do? You just react quickly. You sift it. You knock it this way. You knock it that way. You get rid of it. But I wish people would hit the delete button much more than the <laughs> click on it button. You know, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know how to make people do that, but, but your experience with your, uh, the, uh, the, the post that you made about the music video strikes me as, you know, you know exactly what journalists are feeling as they're filing stories. How do I do this to make anybody sort of read read this and think about this in a different way? Maybe I should be doing memes instead of stories. Maybe right. I should be doing, you know, what? How do I... How do I show that news is important in the, in the social media environment? That's not a... That's not a bad question <laughs> you know that's a tough question to answer but how do you how do you include complexity in something as simple as a meme you know, it's got to be awfully it's got to be awfully smart you know if you're going to be able to to get something that works on all those levels yeah um dennis what do you think about fact checking websites like snopes things like that like the use of 
uh, social media like Twitter and Facebook to try to, uh, you know, differentiate the, the facts from the fiction. I'm glad they exist, and, and I wish there were more of them. In fact, one of my favorite organizations is the International Network of Fact Checkers. And you can go online, and you can, I mean, if you want to fact check just the coronavirus stuff, there's been about 5,000 fact checks on stuff on that alone. <laughs> it's got to be exhausting. And, 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 it is exhausting, and it's exhausting to be the editor of Snopes right now. <laughs> it's exhausting <laughs> to be any of these fact-checking people because they can't possibly fact-check all of it. I mean, you know, if they could really fact-check the Internet, then, then then you could sue these guys for libel. But one of the reasons why social media, you know, is, is sort of uh, uh, immune from libel suits is because nobody can fact-check all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Nobody can really sort of, sort of knows what can happen out there. So I'm glad it exists, but you know, you can't fact check everything. And one of the problems is if you put a little mark on something that says this is true, but you didn't get to everything, does that mean all the stuff that you didn't put the mark on is wrong? Well, no. There's going to be a a certain amount of bad information out there always. And you know what? In my life, my parents' life, my grandfather's parents, my grandfather's life, there were those kinds of there was misinformation and disinformation out there all the time. The difference is its spreadability. The difference is the way it can kind of go exponentially. But here's one more thing I would add to your thinking about this, if you are, is that there are a lot of people out there that aren't participating in this all the time the way a lot of us are. <laughs> you know, I, I think very there's a lot of people a lot of people that are paying attention and that, that don't talk a lot about it much, that aren't uh, fully engaged in social media. They may watch Facebook with their friends and their family, uh, but it's not something they sort of live on in a way. And there are people that have actually tried that, to live on social media full-time for a while, as journalists kind of have to do, and found it entirely exhausting. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, I think taking a break, having a news diet is what I call mm-hmm. it, you know, that makes sense. Where do you get your information? I have a friend of mine that calls it newstrition. And, <laughs> That's pretty good. And she's a farmer, and she also goes to farmer's markets. And she always tells people the things that sell out first are the real necessities, like carrots. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the things that people really want and use because they're going to run out of them if they don't have them. The expensive, fancy items really sort of are there and she hopes they sell out but it's the it's the essential kinds of things so you know eat your vegetables is what she's saying and part of that comes from having sort of sources uh that you can go to uh over and over again to look at 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 their information who actually hire people to vet their information who actually look at at what they've said in the past and and tried to see if they're consistent, who try to explain changes in what they know. And here's the other thing. I, I talk about this in, in libraries and stuff all over the state. I call it, what happened to the news? It's for an older generation primarily. And, and believe me, they're flabbergasted uh, as they look and they try to see what's going on. But they say, who do I trust? And I think it's a question we all ask. But one of the things I've been saying lately is trust the person who tells you when they get it wrong. Right. No kidding. You know, I think about who does that, who doesn't do that. You know, I think everybody makes mistakes. Journalists make mistakes. They have to when you're dealing with all that information. It's a part of it. Now, do they do it every single story? Do they do it all the time? Do they correct their mistakes? Do they do it prominently? Uh, When I see somebody apologize, it doesn't bother. A journalist apologize for making a mistake. It doesn't bother me. 
no. gives them some credibility. Uh, and it gives them some credibility that make, might make me want to listen to them another time. Now, if, if they continue to do this, I'm going to have to find somebody else. <laughs> right. But I, but I actually have go-to places. I have a news cycle, a news diet, and it's yours is going to be different from mine. But I found them to be mostly credible in a lot of different things. I also try to mix it up so that I don't get this echo chamber effect mm-hmm. uh, that you've talked about. Uh, already, which I think is very real and hard to get out of. It's very uh, hard, yeah. But, but I will look at at stories. I'll look at critical kind of things uh, and see, you know, what's tenable, what's rooted sort of factually, what's making... Because I think you have to, because, you know, all of us really needs good information when it's counterintuitive. <laughs> you know, there's something that's true that we don't want to believe, but it's true. Yeah. And yes. we should know. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's when we had institutions that were big and robust and had, had gone through enough battles that you knew you could trust them, even when they said it counterintuitive things. That's harder to do in this environment, too, because there's always another another source that can co- combat that thing. So, so I still think it's important to have journalists. I still think local journalism matters, and that's my biggest fear right now, yeah. that given that given the current environment, that there may not be many of those. Those who are out there are stressed, barely hanging on. There's a lot more a lot more talk in my ethics and, sem- and trend seminar about uh, alternatives and nonprofit journalism right now mm-hmm. and lots of different ways that they might be able to keep doing it because they know it matters. They know that, that, that the economic model may be exploded, but they do know that there's a demand for good information out there. They feel it themselves. They want to be providers of that. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's laudable. So I think, you know, local news has to be supported somehow. Uh, and how we how are we going to change the models and the, how are we going to even have this conversation uh, on a bigger sort of sc- uh, scale? But I think there's uh, one of the things that I see out there that I really like is collaboration among news sources. Yeah. You know, that may sound strange, but I don't think anybody can get to everything on a local level anymore. They really do have to kind of combine and uh, find things that each one is good at and put it together on a, in a project or something like that that adds depth and perspective uh, to some kind of issue. Now, getting people to read it's going to be another thing. Mm-hmm. But I do think over time people are going to have to gravitate to stuff that saves them. You know, it's it's kind of what we're trying to do with this show too. You know, we're there's so many and you know podcasts are still a relatively new form of media there was a stat we talked about where only 50% of americans have listened to a podcast um and we're there's so many where it's just talking heads it's this is my opinion this is my opinion boom we're done and we're what we're trying to do with this show is create something that by the end of it we can actually be constructive and learn something and actually add and you know we have all three of us with different perspectives and, you know, we're actually putting in the research, putting in the time with the sources, putting you know, in the time with different perspectives and trying to learn and bring a new idea to it and then bringing in, you know, experts like yourself to add to the conversation in a constructive way rather than just like, here's some more noise. Yeah. Well, power to you. That's all I can say. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately. I, 
I take my two mile walk every day. Oh, there you and go. And when I when I do, I've got the podcast on, and I love the ones that have lots of segments and bring in lots of voices. Yep. Uh, and voices are different kind of experts, and even voices on on uh, you know credible voices on different sides of controversies. I love hearing that. Uh, I really have a mind. I can make up my mind <laughs> right. and decide things. I can think critically. That's like you know, my wife. Uh, we talk about it a lot where she's she's very quick to cut somebody out of social media if, you know, they're spewing, you know, ideas or topics that don't align with her. And she, you know, wonders why I have so many people on my social media that are, you know, on every side of the spectrum and I just, like I say, I don't want to close myself off to that. I don't want to create my own echo chamber. So that's why I have, you know, my conservative friends that I grew up with in Bonner, Montana. And then, you know, my liberal friends that I went to the university with and, you know, who say or whatever. But I just, I don't want to close myself off to stuff that I can learn or, you know, different perspectives I can gain because it just doesn't help you at all. Right. And even empathy for other points of view. I mean, right. empathy for other people who believe things. That's that's kind of foundational. Uh, we have to have it if we're going to understand each other. And, and it's hard sometimes. <laughs> it's really, it's much easier to make a, a cutting joke and cut them off, you know. Uh, but I think you have to you have to know what other people are saying. You have to understand where it goes. You also have to know how to put it in sort of spatial perspective how much weight is there about this particular issue and with social media today we can track how many clicks we can track the, mm -hmm. the viralness of something uh so even if it gets a short hot spike we're able to sort of think in our minds that whoa this is much bigger than we think i think it's always been big in some ways and we just couldn't measure it before uh but how did people really act you know, I just saw, I've seen a lot of polls in Montana, and that's what I can talk about the best, but people are, are sort of, you know, buying a lot of the advice that they're getting on how to act in the coronavirus situation, and people are, are being careful about it, and people who are listening to good uh, information are staying home, are taking care of each other, are doing those things, even before the government says they have to. And it's easy to, 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 to put some of the other sort of reactions to it uh, in a much bigger context. I was even thinking about the protests at, at capitals across the country about opening and opening up quickly. And I understand the pressure to open up quickly. Gosh, there's real pain here. Uh, but the question is, how do we do that in a way that safeguards people's lives? And I see those groups and then more reporting about who's behind them. And they're fairly small. They're not all that representation. Well, and then uh, you get the people, too. what was it, down at the beach in Florida where they're like, I've been in quarantine, I need to get drunk, I need to party. And it's like, what do you do about right. people like that? Well, I think, you know, I, you know, I don't know what you can do with people like that that <laughs> don't want to pay much attention to it other than other than they 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 will learn or they won't yeah uh, and and uh, a lot of and the consequences of not learning could be kind of deadly sometimes also you know what what could what do you think the press could do to bring in uh some of the skeptics of news uh, again you know you mentioned that that people you know that have always been somewhat skeptical of the news you know, going back to even the 70s and further back 
but but it seems like that's gone down since then. How do we bring back, say, a Trump supporter or you know, something that you know that just does not believe anything that the New York Times says just because it's the New York Times until you know Donald Trump tweets it or something? Like, how do you how do you bring back those people into the fray? Well, I don't know. All I can do is keep putting out and encourage people to put out information that stands up over time. Uh, it's easy to think of the situations that we live in that we that we live in in the moment as lasting forever, but they don't. Uh, and and people change, and 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 situations change, and uh, mm-hmm. you know different different things emerge as as sort of social truths that people can understand, and sometimes it takes hard lessons. Uh, to kind of make that happen. I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's also uh, some problems with journalists on the left uh, who look down mm-hmm. upon people uh, on the right. Yes. I think there is a, a kind of a bias sometimes against a blue-collar uh, sort of work ethic in America. And boy, what a shame. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. what what part of American society has suffered as much? Uh, you know, I, Nicholas Kristoff is at the university here. Uh, this semester, right before we got locked down. And he wrote a, a book about what's happened to the, the middle class based on what happened to his hometown of Yamhill, Oregon, a little uh, kind of manufacturing town uh, not that far from Portland. But, but you know, so many people there are just locked in sort of uh, cycles of depression and despair and drugs and alcohol because they really don't have the dignity of work and manufacturing uh, and and uh, uh, sort of reason to sort of exist. And this, this, this is before any sort of pandemic. Uh, and I think we haven't paid nearly enough attention to that, uh, really. And, uh, you know, it's more than just being angry. It's coming up with, with systems and solutions that work for a lot of people because those folks are making, you know, wages that were really haven't gained in any sort of real inflationary uh, means since the 1970s uh, and mm-hmm. sort of how how do you how do you talk about an equitable system how do you talk about making uh, it work for a lot more people and I think that's those issues don't get discussed very much uh, we get distracted away from them. we get distracted by the anger uh, and by the partisanship but we have to have a lot more more meetings of the minds over solutions instead of distractions. And that's easy for me to say. It's hard for me to make that happen, but I don't know any other way than to, to encourage people of goodwill to get outside their bubbles. And I think, you know, the, the area where you're more likely to do that is at the local level. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we're much more likely as people to meet each other on the softball diamond or, you know, at a, <laughs> at a nonprofit that's fixing up the parks or in some mm-hmm. food drive to help somebody whose who's, uh, house burned down. It's, it's very easy for that, a Texan to get mad at a Californian. You right. Know? And it's, it's, very, it's much easier to get mad at people online than in person. <laughs> well, and I'm, I'm glad <laughs> well, you, you said know? that, Dennis, because I do think that there's a huge problem with, you know, on, in the left media, we do have that kind of ivory, you know, watchtower kind of issue where we look down on everyone. And I... In 2016, and I was kind of covering the campaign trail, and a lot of what I heard is that, well, I'm too scared to talk about this because we've made it mainstream to shut down certain conversations. And we still need to present facts, but we need to be careful not to completely stop dialogue and make it a little bit, you know, popular to disenfranchise these people because then they don't speak up or they go on these very niche platforms or they're yelling on Facebook. Right. And then all of a sudden right. we get we get 
you know, election results, or we get, you know, something that blows our mind. And we're so shocked that there's this section of people who believe this. And it's because we didn't talk to them. We didn't ask. We didn't open up the dialogue. And I think that's really important. Well, and I know a lot of people that I grew up with, they're afraid, you know, I think they've become more confident since he was elected. But I know some people that were afraid to say that they were Trump supporters because, you know, they get looked down upon. Yeah. And we really have no one to blame but ourselves when when that conversation shuts off or when we lose that opportunity to educate each other. Because we, you know, we can't allow certain types of hate and vitriol, but we really have to make sure that we're not completely shutting off a discourse because I don't want to live in a a world where it's it's one-sided all the time. Uh, The average American doesn't go to a university for journalism, so I think there's a lot of misunderstanding (laughs) from the average person of what a journalist is, you know, what are the, the, the things that they that they live up to, to, to be a, good at what they do. And so, you know, a lot of times when, when I hear somebody criticizing a journalist, like, like I, I always sort of like shake my head and, 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 and you know, I wish that they knew how, how much of oneself goes into being a journalist and how risky it is, you know, even, even in the modern age, even in, the, in America, how risky it is sometimes for these people to, to to report the stories that they do. Yeah, and I, you know, some of the attacks that I've seen on journalists lately, and some of these are my students uh, who are talking to me about being in Phoenix and photographing scenes and being verbally abused and coming within an inch of being beat up. And I just mm-hmm. think, you know, all he's doing is covering something. Uh, in his case, he was covering a protest. He was giving them a voice, a platform. You know, and yet he was the, somehow the, the 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 messenger of you know of what's wrong, and and he was ca- catching the scorn for it. And I just thought, gosh, you know that that's that's okay. pretty sad. And I also yeah. think you know you mentioned a, another point uh, about it, just this engaging with your audience, knowing your audience. And I think you know that's the that's one of the things that journalists forget so quickly. We think of the people we cover as kind of two-dimensional without, you know, they're just not real. They're characters, they're props. They they listen to what we give them. And, and boy, that doesn't work really well. And some of the good collaborative uh, things that I've seen lately are ones that engage communities in what's important. And I've seen, I've seen newspapers, I've seen radio stations do this. I've seen TV, TV stations put this on. There's something called the Solutions Journalism Network that's doing some good work in these areas too. But what they do is they get news people to sort of have meetings and buy beer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and get people to talk about, you know, what stories they'd like to see uh, they can all agree on that they'd like to see the media kind of pursue. Now, I'm not going to yeah. surrender as a journalist my you know, prerogative to point out things that I problems that people need to pay attention to that they don't see. Right. But I also think we do have to make sure that we're relevant. We have to make sure that we're covering things that people really care about and understand, and we understand their lives. And that's kind of a problem for journalism. I mean, journalism does have some has some things to answer for about its past, about its practices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard for us to explain it because there's no one way to be a journalist. There's no law. There's no test. There's no school, you know, that everybody has to go to uh, to do this. So, you know, there that's one of the things we have to make sure people understand immediately, too. You know, who is the media? (laughs) 
what I always ask people when they criticize the media, I say, well, who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a fair question. <laughs> who, exactly, who exactly are you talking about? You know, tell me, because it's not monolithic. And, and there are there are journalists that follow what I think are ethical, critical thinking, best, best practices, and there are journalists call you know i i don't like to get this argument who's a journalist or what i think it's kind of self-defeating because anybody with access to a platform can adopt that can commit mm-hmm. an act of journalism as i like to say you know uh so you have to be careful who does it repeatedly well who does it with credibility over the time who is willing to admit their mistakes uh you know and those those are not bad guidelines you know and i think I think it's people hear you talk about those kind of things. Uh, they listen for that too. But I also think you have to listen to them. All right, guys, we're coming up on time here. Um, Dennis, before we head out, any final point you would like to make? Well, no, I just, you know, I've been on a media literacy kick lately and I'm going to be doing some some speeches and, and some presentations around the place. But I really think it needs to be something that the school systems do. And I think only 20, um, less than half of the states in the U.S. have sort of media literacy state-mandated curriculums throughout hmm. the states. I know Montana right. doesn't. And uh, it has a very sort of loose policy, so you're going to teach it. Or rather, high school librarians can teach it if they want to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. That's the thing and, we and didn't really learn at Hellgate. To. They are they are they're they're petrified of this stuff. They're going to be between parents and principals and <laughs> and it's a touchy and, thing. You know, all sorts, all sorts of angry thing. I did you know I do these sort of things at high school teachers conferences and and I had trouble getting people even to come to something about teaching people to spot fake news because they didn't want to do that in their math classes or their science <laughs> classes or their social studies classes or their history classes because it's going to put them at odds with with parents who who think you're just touting some sort of line but really it's just critical thinking and it and it matters to every topic you can possibly think of critical thinking it's more important than you think Dennis, thank you for coming on. It was Thanks, great Dennis. to have you. Great talking to you. I hope you're yeah, doing thank well. Thank you so much. Hope you can make it out on the river this summer. It'd be nice to go fly fishing once in a while. I'm trying to plan a trip. We'll see if it happens. Do what you can. <laughs> All right, Dennis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk to you guys. Yep, have Bye. a good one. Me too. Bye-bye. All right, guys. So that was Dennis Swibold. And um, I didn't state it before, but he was my uh, journalism ethics uh, professor. I took the same class that he was mentioning and it is a wonderful class. I know a lot of people think at the you know end of their collegiate career their ethics course is the most strenuous and the most boring that they can take but that journalism ethics course and you know Dennis got you thinking now he got us really thinking during that course and it's it's a fascinating thing to listen to. It, it really is. You could tell I mean he, the guy is fascinating uh, to listen to. He's been he's been in the industry a while and he he knows what he's talking about and so um, he's he's a perfect example of the people that we want to bring onto this show to you know voice their experiences and voice their perspectives because they they know what they're talking about quite frankly um, and so it's it's really helpful to have someone like Dennis on um, but um, we're going pretty far um, but I want to go around um, Curtis what what are your thoughts what's going through your mind right now what what piqued your interest um from our conversation with dennis 
Well, I mean, <laughs> it was you know, a deep I, sigh. I, it was, it was, uh, yeah, well, I was just, I kind of just trying to take it all in. Um, you know, the, uh, he, he said a, a lot of, of what we were already talking about, but just much better. <laughs> <laughs> That's very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I love what he said about you know, uh, you know, what news organizations or what I don't know, you know, just what what are you what, what are you listening to that that never admits that they're wrong? You know, I like you know we talked about last week um, that you know there are these fake news awards and that mo- that Trump was putting out that was on the official GOP website, and, and I thought it was a really bad representation of the Republican Party. Because um, because there's nothing wrong with the news the news getting something wrong if they correct it like what's wrong about it is if, is if the newspaper like you know does it on purpose and then doesn't correct it you know right. it doesn't have that like uh, you know fall back on their on their integrity and so like you know when he said you know make sure that that whatever you're ingesting you know admits when they're wrong and that how important that is. Like that really rung true for me because you know that that's one of my main, main criticisms of a lot of websites for the news. It's one of my main criticisms of Trump. You know, you never hear him say he's wrong. Like everybody's wrong. Like everybody is wrong <laughs> at some point. You know, and like you just can't, and so I'm very I, I would distrust even in real life people who who, who seem to be infallible. You know, because uh, <laughs> they usually are <laughs> are as much or more than everyone else. I mean, just us, right? We're perfect. Oh, yeah, but that's absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to us, people. No, we're joking. Kara, uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts? What are your final remarks? Yeah, I think, you know, we, he hit on it great. We've never had such a saturated news market, if you will. I, we've never been able to pull from as many sources as we can today. And so I think we have to remember to check our own biases and the people that are screaming the loudest, whether they be a politician or whether it be your neighbor on her blog, it doesn't mean that they're right. And I think as consumers, it's really important for us to make sure as we're reading news, it's okay if it's uncomfortable because it challenges something we want to believe. That doesn't mean it's wrong. And so we need to make sure that we're kind of checking that in ourselves. And then as journalists, you know, like he said, are we are we thinking of our audience or are we thinking about our agenda. And I think there's definitely blame on both sides. And I think that a good place to start is as a consu- as a consumer to make sure that you're responsibly consuming your media and giving it a little bit of thought. All right, y'all. That'll uh, I think that'll do it for uh, news literacy uh, part one and two. Uh, we're not sure what we're going to be covering uh, in the next episode, um, but we'll figure that out eventually. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you can uh, check us out on uh, podcastswithoutborders.com. You can shoot us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of us about anything. If you have any topics that you want us to cover, let us know. We'd love to talk about it. Uh, did you guys? Do you guys want to plug anything? Do you have anything to plug? No, Harry nah. Styles has a new music video out. <laughs> Everyone go uh, check it out. Oh, for um, uh, Watermelon, Watermelon Sugar. Watermelon Sugar, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about like what happened on set during that? Like that everyone, he's the consent like king. asking for consent to you know touch you know oh, her hair and good. her to kiss him. Oh, it's so he's a wonderful person. Also, he has that song um, where he's in the music video. He's just singing to a fish. Oh. Um, um, Oh gosh, I should know I this. I I watched. I made my boyfriend watch the whole eight minutes when it came out. It, they're really fun music videos. It's a good time. I'm fine with him. Uh, oh, I do have something. Curtis, what do you have to plug? 
Okay, uh, so about two months ago, I did a uh, a film for a uh, stay at home um, uh, like film competition. You have to make it in right, yeah, yeah. Hours. You can't leave your house, and yeah, and I, I I finally uploaded it to YouTube on my channel. So if you if you look up on YouTube, uh, it's called Call Somebody, and uh, you can uh, check out a five minute movie where. Uh, I, I try to bring back my dramatic acting chops, and it, it all has to do with uh, with dealing with uh, um, a death uh, due to the, the coronavirus, and, and and I play a character that starts out as as a as a skeptic that that all everything's news, and by the end of it, he, it I, my hope is that it's uh, expresses that that my character's changed his mind, and that he, when he becomes um, personally affected by it. He, on youtube it's called call somebody there we go very fitting all right folks um and don't forget to rate and review wherever apple podcasts you know wherever spotify you find your podcasts uh but yeah i think that'll do it so uh listen in for the next episode thanks y'all thank you for listening to social discord part of the podcast without borders network you can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com you can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash PWBN. Thanks for listening.